I tend to move when I speak as well. So I tend to move my hands and stuff. And so every once in a while, there may be that French-Canadian part of me that's going to lift both hands up and speak at the same time. And so that's not a technical problem. That's just a human problem in terms of the sound. In order to be able to, uh, I think, be able to understand and appreciate exactly where we're going to be going this morning with the whole idea of what, how would Jesus deal with shame, uh, we need to understand the two parts of what uh, sort of the challenges before us this morning that we want to take a look at. And so I'm going to define two forms of, of um, well, one form of shame and one form that's called godly sorrow. And you'll see that uh, word that's used um, in the uh, online Bible study notes that you have for your small groups. And so for those of you who have um, access and go to that, if you take a look at it, you'll see that Pastor Kevin has broke down a whole bunch of discussion questions and stuff there. And, um, and so he uses the two words, both godly sorrow and shame. So I want to break that down for us so that we're all speaking about the same thing. Is that good? Okay. So the first one is this. This is what shame is. Shame is a painful emotion caused by our conscious awareness of guilt, shortcomings, or wrong behavior. It is also viewing ourselves in the light of our past wrongs and believing we will never be able to change. Now, I want you to be able to understand something. Shame is something that holds you captive. It literally holds you captive. It takes you and it puts you in, type, in, a, in, a, in a heart prison. And literally, you see life, you see yourself, you see others, you see relationships, you see circumstances. You even see God through the grid work of that shame. And that shame is sometimes things that we have done that we just feel terribly badly about. Sometimes it's things that have been said to us. It's a shame that we, that we feel about who we are. And in, uh, basically almost a sense of a very poor self-concept, very poor self-image. It affects everything about who we are. Here's what godly sorrow is. Okay, so I want you to be able to appreciate that. The word that is used in the 2 Corinthians 7 passage in the Greek is literally the word that's best translated uh, either pain or sorrow. And so it means that it's something that does cause you literal pain. It's usually emotional pain, mental pain, but can also feel very physical when you're experiencing it. But it results in what we call a sorrow, not necessarily a shame. The sorrow can sometimes lead to shame, but not from a godly perspective. There's another purpose behind that. We're going to get into that. When it comes down to shame and what comes down to the whole idea of this godly sorrow, what you need to be able to realize, and that is that Jesus is basically trying to say to you and to me that the whole issue here is the heart. We want to be able to deal with the heart. That's at the core of it. He wants that relationship with you that goes beyond Facebook status. Is that understood? Jesus doesn't want to be on your Twitter. Okay? He has no interest whatsoever you sharing Snapchat photos with him. That, that's not what he wants. What Jesus wants is that intimacy with you where there's a really strong connection with your heart. And therefore, this is all about the battle for the heart. Jesus said these words, you will know the truth, and the truth will? Ah, you're a good Baptist. This is great. And that. The truth will? Set you free. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because I've got to tell you something. That, that, that really comes down to the core of where we're going to be able to go this morning. Because honestly, this will just be words. This will just be words. All we're going to hear this morning are words, unless you start and understand the premise of that most incredible truth that Jesus has for you and for me, that we will know this truth, that this truth works powerfully in our story, in our journey, in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls, in our relationships, not only with ourselves and with God, but with others. It sets us free 
free to honestly live the story that God wants us to be able to live. And, it, and it's not just to be set free to live that story. It's set free to live it powerfully. So that not only are you able to experience God's blessings, you're able to take those blessings and pass them along to other people as well. That's what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Are we okay going on this journey together? All right. Okay. So um, you can turn in your Bibles. I don't have any PowerPoint. And the reason I don't have PowerPoint is because I quit using it about three or four years ago, uh, working with youth and young adults. That's my primary audiences that I'm working with and I'm speaking to. And uh, the reason is because I realized none of them are taking the PowerPoint home with them. Uh, They just don't. And so I literally have been getting more and more to the point where I'm saying to them, I want you to find a Bible. And I want you to open the Bible. I want you to be able to look at it. And I don't care if they have it on their phones or their tablets or whatever else it is too. But I want them to be able to realize they have this with them. They're carrying it with them. And they need to go back into it on their own. And so this morning we're going old school. Are you okay with that? How do you say to a guy with white hair, no, we don't want to go old school. Yeah, we're going old school this morning. Second Corinthians 7, in that passage that uh, will be the passage that you guys will be taking a look at more in your small groups and that. There's one key verse here that helps us to be able to understand and identify the meaning of what godly sorrow is really all about. And that's in verse 10. And um, in verse 10 it literally says that godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful definition. That's an unbelievably powerful statement. That godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance is a change in attitude towards the situation or towards the way I see myself or towards the, uh, my understanding even of my relationship with God, my relationship with others. It's a change in attitude and behavior. That's what repentance is. Godly sorrow brings repentance, and that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret. In other words, the ability for us to be able to say to myself, you know something, I just got a clean start. I just got a do-over. I just got this opportunity to be able to say to myself, hey, you want to know something? This is unbelievable. I can now go forward as if this never happened. That is unbelievable. That's the truth that truly sets you free. Now, I want you to be able to appreciate something, too. And that is that worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow. In other words, there is such a thing as worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, when it's left undealt with, often leads to shame. And that shame, therefore, then puts us into that prison, a heart prison, a soul prison. And when we're in that prison, here's the most amazing thing that it does to us. And that is that it begins to kill the life that God intends for us to be able to have and to live begins to kill that life story that we have. And as a result, it removes from us slowly, not always all at once, but slowly, our joy, our peace, but most importantly, our hope that anything can be different. I hope you realize this about sin. And I'm just going to throw this in here real quick. I was reflecting upon that as I was preparing this message. And um, I hope you realize this about sin. Very seldom is sin a quick death. Very seldom because you and I sin is it a quick death. It's a slow poison. It's an unbelievably slow poison. It gets into our soul, it gets into our heart, it gets into our being. And as a result, it begins to kill us off slowly. Shame is an example of that. And that because of the way that that poison just begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. And before you know it, it has literally killed off so much of the story that God intends for you and me to be able to live. Are you with me on this so far? We're good? Okay. Let me give you an idea of how godly sorrow can be at work here, all right? How godly sorrow can really be at work, and it's a very, very powerful tool. 
Uh, Pastor Kevin asked a question in there um, in the Bible study notes that he has for the discussion thing, and I thought it was a great question. Have you ever had a friend who's come up to you and basically challenged you on something in your life which you knew wasn't right? You knew the, the way you were going. It just was wrong. This was stuff that you're sort of looking at and you're saying to yourself, oh, my goodness. And, that, and all of a sudden somebody comes up and just lovingly and graciously confronts you on it. And, um, and suddenly you realize to yourself, oh, yeah, you're right. I need to deal with this. Let's take an example of that together. Can we do that? All right. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's the passage we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses there. In that, but we're not going to go through them piece by piece. Otherwise, we'd be here right in through the second service as well. In that. So, but uh, let me give you some of the highlights here. This is a chapter that basically has followed the one that is just sort of unbelievable about David. And David is the man, by the way, who is called a man after God's own heart. So I want you to be able to keep that in the context here. And uh, David, a man after God's own heart, has committed adultery. He has committed adultery, meaning that he has basically had sex with a married woman. And uh, that married woman was married to a man who was serving in David's army, a guy by the name of Uriah. David not only decides when he finds out that she's pregnant because of his affair with her, but now he decides to cover it up and he's going to get the man killed. So David goes ahead and premeditates the man's murder. And by the way, David is not just responsible for murdering this one man. If you look at the passage, other men fell with him that day as well. And I would imagine they were friends who basically couldn't understand why everybody was pulling back from Uriah at the battle line. But they decided that they wouldn't. David was responsible not just for one murder, but for many murders that day. He had much blood on his hands that he admits later. The amazing thing about it is that David then goes into an unbelievable system of cover-up. He marries the woman. He pretends the child is his own, etc., etc., etc. You can bet at this point in time, David is living with a worldly sorrow that has turned to shame. That has basically begun to capture his heart and begin to kill him. And he knows it's killing him. The amazing thing about it is that all of a sudden it says that Nathan the prophet one day comes up towards David and he tells him this story. He says there was this poor man who had one little lamb, and it was a lamb that he nurtured, he cared for, he just loved this little thing. As a matter of fact, he took care of it with all of his heart. It was so precious to him. Well, there was a rich man who was holding a feast, and basically he decided he wanted to serve his guest's lamb. And so he went ahead and he took the poor man's lamb, and he fed it to his guests. And the most crazy thing about it in verse 5 is it says that David burned with anger. He burned with anger. Here's something I want you to be able to realize. And I want you to be able to realize it, not when you see it in others, but when you see it in yourself. And by the way, to be able to see something in ourself is oftentimes the most difficult thing that we can ever do. But that sometimes that you and I will sense the greatest injustice, the greatest things that will make us anger, and we'll feel it's a righteous anger, as David felt right here. Who is this man? Who is this man? I promise you, I'm going to get him. How dare he do something like that? And oftentimes that sense of unbelievable righteous anger that doesn't come from a place of love or grace comes from a place of shame. It comes from a place because you know that in your own heart you're not measuring up. It comes from a place in your own heart because you know that in your story right now the truth is you're not walking the way you should be. But as a result, though, it's so easy for you to get angry at the sins of others and to be finger-pointing and to be looking at them and giving them eyes of condemnation Toughest words in the world for David to hear at that point must have been Nathan looking at him and saying to him, you are the man. Now, you know something? If you're Southern Baptist, you would have preached it this way. You are the man. And that because Southern Baptists, not like 
Greenbelt Baptists, but Southern Baptists, like to be able to point their finger in somebody's face and be able to say, You are the man! You know, as many times as I've looked and read this passage and thought about it and reflected upon it, I don't think that's the way Nathan delivered it. I honestly don't think that's the way he delivered it. I think he delivered it with a brokenness, the same brokenness that God's heart felt over the whole thing. And the same love and the same care and the same grace and the same compassion that God feels when he deals with us in our sin. And I'm positive that Nathan's voice was breaking as he looked at David and said, You are the man. You are. It's you, David. It's you. It's you. Let us remember that. Let us remember that. Let us remember that if we are ever called to help a brother or sister to be able to see their life redeemed, and redeem means to be able to take it out of one state and place it into another state, a beautiful state, something that has been hurting you into something that is unbelievably healing, that if we're ever called to do that, you and I are called to do it the same way, with God's care, his compassion, his love, and that being everything that breaks our heart for the brokenness of what we see in the other person. David's words in verse 13 are the most incredibly powerful words of somebody who is recognized that they have been gripped in worldly sorrow that has led to shame, but now they are experiencing godly sorrow. I have sinned. Plain and simple. End of discussion. End of, end of it. That's all there is. I have to just be able to say to you, I own this. I own this. It's nobody's fault but my own. I'm not putting the blame on circumstance, situation, past history, past opportunity, past missed opportunity. There's nothing. I have sinned. And not only have I sinned, I have sinned against the Lord. There's a humility that comes with that. If we want us to be able to truly understand how we need to experience repentance, repentance has to come by us totally, totally owning what the moment is. And David does that. Turn with me to Psalm 51, if you would, please. This was a psalm that David wrote after this experience with Nathan the prophet. And after he, sorry, not so much after as, well, as much as while he was on the journey of spiritual healing, spiritual restoration, and experiencing God's unbelievable redemption. And all I want you to do here is to be able to follow with me, to be able to understand how God wants to do this in your story and in my story by how he did it in David's story. In Psalm 51, in that... This is all about the power of redemption. In verse 7, Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Now, there's something here I want you to be able to appreciate. And that is that in each of the next couple of verses that we're going to take a look at, including this one, I want you to be able to appreciate this. And that is that none of these actions are taken by David. He's asking God to do it. Because David realizes something. I cannot undo what's been done. Isn't that the unbelievable power that shame holds upon you and upon me? And that is the fact that you suddenly realize to yourself that you're captive to this thing. You're captive to it. And as a matter of fact, not only are you captive to it, but you can't get rid of it. No matter what you've done, you can't seem to be able to walk away from this thing that has just held you in its grip. Well, can I suggest something to you? You can't do anything about it on your own. You can't. But God can but Jesus can. And the most amazing thing about it, and I think this is why David's called a man after God's own heart, he realized that. He recognized that. He understood the unbelievable care, compassion, and most importantly, the grace 
of God. You cleanse me. I will be clean. You wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. And I realize these are the words of somebody who's taken a serious look at his own heart and realized how dark it's gotten. How unbelievably dark it's gotten. Dark to the point it even terrifies him. I cannot believe I did these things. And yet all of a sudden he's able to look and he says, but God, you're the only one right now who can truly make it different. You will know the truth and the truth will. Create in me a pure heart, a willing spirit to stay on the right path in verse 10. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, Lord, it's not just enough that I'm going to walk in repentance. It's not just enough, God, that I'm going to recognize that there's a huge need on my part to be totally transformed and changed into somebody new. But God, I want to be able to experience that joy again that comes to being able to walk in that freedom. And then I love verse 13. Somebody want to read that for me? This is my way of making certain you're following. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down this way. I said, and then I will become a messenger to others who sin so they can turn back to you. Isn't that a pretty bold statement? I mean, like, honestly, isn't that a pretty bold statement? I mean, you committed adultery, you committed murder, you committed deceit, you broke about four or five of the top ten commandments. And you now are going to become a messenger to others saying, you also need to repent. And most of us be looking at that going, hey, man, we ain't even come close to doing the stuff you've done. Unless it's been in my heart. Been in my heart, yes. I have wanted to kill people with the way they drive sometimes. Uh, No. (laughs) Confession is good for the soul and bad for the reputation, right? But isn't this incredible? How David even realizes that in his relationship with God, God, you want to know something? Oh, my story is going to become something that other people are going to be able to look at. No matter what situation they've ever found themselves, they will realize you offer an unbelievable, complete way out. You offer a get-out-of-jail card. You offer an ability for us to be able to say, my story from this moment on can be completely different only because of the grace, the love, the compassion, and the forgiveness of God. And then Jesus came and exemplified that for us, didn't he? Didn't he do that? Unbelievable. It's not enough that you and I simply say, hey, how can our lives be transformed? It's, hey, how can my life be transformed, God, in such a way that the humility that I walk in and the grace that I'm absorbed by all of a sudden becomes a message to everybody around me that there's hope for them as well. And it's not because of me ever judging them, God, because I have no right to do so. It's because of me loving them the way that you have loved me. Are you with me so far on this? Yeah. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 4. And in this particular chapter, um, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at the whole chapter here, so it shouldn't take us more than another 30 minutes. Um, boom, as Cam would say. <laughs> this is the power of Jesus to undo shame. The power of Jesus to be able to undo shame. And um, as I was praying through what passages I could look at in order to be able to help to be able to explain this portion of it, this passage kept coming back to mind. In this particular passage, Jesus and his disciples have been on a journey, and basically what they're doing is they're taking a shortcut through an area of the country called Samaria. And basically Samaria 
to be able to sum it up, because we don't have time to be able to go into the whole details of what this passage has for us. But to be able to sum it up, basically it tells us in verse 9, the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they don't even use their dishes. And the reason they looked at that was because they looked at the Samaritans as having a belief in God that they would have looked at and said it was apostate. It, it, basically, this is just so false. It is so absolutely wrong. I mean, it's amazing that God even lets them walk upon the face of the earth, believing the things that they do. That's honestly how the Jewish people felt about the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't feel that much more positive about the Jews. But basically, they looked at each other, and the Jewish people just looked at them and said, you have taken the things of God and turned it into things that are not about God at all. That's how just wrong you people are. As a matter of fact, you're so wrong, we don't want anything to do with you. As a matter of fact, we're afraid that if we even touch you, as a matter of fact, if we touch your dishes or anything with you, we're going to become basically contaminated. We're going to become contaminated. We're going to become sinful people just because of the fact that we had any association with you whatsoever. Well, it says that they cut through Samaria with Jesus. They're taking a shortcut. And probably the reason they're doing it is because Jesus is exhausted. Jesus was fully human. Never forget that. And he says, I understand you and all of your weaknesses. As a matter of fact, when they go into town to buy something and that, they didn't lead Jesus out of the town just for the fact of purity rules, although that may have had some influence on it. It also is because he was exhausted. It says he went ahead and just leaned up against the well and sat there on the ground. He was totally done. It was in the heat of the day, and he was just tired. It says then that along comes the Samaritan woman, and she's obviously drawing water. You need to ask yourself why the woman's coming at the middle of the day, during the heat of the day. It's not the time that you draw water. You draw water at the beginning of the day when it's really cool and everything's cool. But the problem is she would have come there and been the talk of the town. And we'll discover why in a little bit. And so she's decided, you know something, I'd rather go in the heat of the day when at least nobody can remind me of the shame that I'm living in, of the things that hold me captive any longer. I just don't need to see that look in their eyes. I don't see the need to see them turning their faces away. I mean, even amongst the Samaritans, she was an outcast. So she comes along in the heat of the day, and Jesus lifts up his eyes and sees her coming. And I'm positive that because he tells us he never did anything the Father didn't want him to do, I never said anything the Father didn't want me to say. Gospel John records that for us. I'm positive at that time the Father said to him, Hey, look up. See that woman coming towards you? Ask her for a drink. Okay, Father, I will. That's not in your passage. But I honestly believe that's how it worked. The amazing thing about it is that she immediately responds. She says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and not only that, a woman, for a drink? She totally, totally despises the fact that he would even think to do that. Who are you? Have you forgotten your place? Have you forgotten your beliefs? Have you forgotten your convictions? Have you forgotten the things that define your story and your walk and your relationship with God? Because I've got to tell you something. You obviously have forgotten. And trust me, you do not want a drink from me. The most incredible thing about shame is that it brings out your anger. It brings out your anger. And I want you to be able to appreciate something. If God calls you to be able to walk alongside somebody who is captive and captured by shame, you need to understand something. They're not angry at you. They're not angry at you. You're simply the lightning rod for their anger. Jesus responds to her by telling her, if you knew the person who'd asked you for a drink, You'd ask him for a drink instead. And he would give you living water so that you would never thirst again. What Jesus is doing here, and I wish we had more time to be able to break this passage down further. But what Jesus is doing here is a beautiful thing. What he's doing is he's awakening within her a thirst that she knows is there. 
but it goes way beyond water. Way beyond water. As a matter of fact, her response, you have to be able to read it for what it is and with the tiredness of soul that must have been reflected in that response. Maybe you could just give me that water so I wouldn't have to come back here to draw again. And that tiredness that she's expressing here, that's way beyond just the fact that she's saying, in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, coming out here in order to be able to get water, for me to be able to bring it back so that we got water to be able to eat and drink with, to be able to wash with, to be able to cook with. And She's saying something way beyond that. I'm so tired of coming here in the middle of the day because I can't come at any other time. I'm so tired of just even walking through the streets of my town because of the way that people look at me. And I'm so tired because of the history of what I know I've done and what I know I'm doing. And she's looking at Jesus and she's saying to him, why don't you give me something so I honestly would never have to thirst again. They then get into a bit of a discussion and then all of a sudden she says, all right, give it to me. Let me, let me have this. And Jesus responds with a simple question. Go get your husband. That would have been a protocol thing. If we're going to discuss something far more intimately in your life, then really you should have a male figure here who you're responsible for. Go get your husband. If when you're reading this passage next time, pause. Pause there. Because if you think she answered right away, you're wrong. I'm sure she was looking at Jesus. And when you're in a stare down with Jesus, unbelievable things begin to happen in your heart, your soul, your mind. And while she's in this stare down with him, I believe all of a sudden she's trying to figure out how to answer this question. How do I answer this question? You're obviously somebody completely different here, and I'm not sure how to be able to answer this question even. I'm not even sure where to go with it. And all of a sudden, in a quiet voice, and a voice that must have sounded broken, she just said, I have no husband. And I love what Jesus says. Quite true. Quite true. Now we're really talking. Now we're really talking. You see, you've had five husbands. And the person, the man that you're with right now, you're not married to. He's not your husband. At this point, if you were her, how would you have felt? Shame. Shame. But I think there's something else that she discovered all of a sudden. She goes into a bit of a spiritual argument with Jesus. And he kind of dismantles that one real fast. And all of a sudden, she's just looking at him the whole time. And I think that when you're in a stare down with Jesus, the same thing as I believe today. When you come into an encounter with Jesus, you experience the same thing. And that is all of a sudden, you find a love, a grace, a compassion, a care that is there that is overwhelming. And all of a sudden, as you enter into his presence, you sense nothing but his heart for you. That same heart that says, but while you and I were still sinners, still stuck in our shame, he went to the cross and he died for us. The same love that says, I want you to know something. I've loved you in all your ugliness. In all your ugliness. Not the cleaned up way you come to church on Sunday mornings. I've loved you because I've known everything about you. You know, the most powerful thing that I suddenly realized for the first time this week as I was preparing this message, and I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to prepare this message this week because I never saw this before. And it amazes me how many times I've preached from this passage and studied this passage and never seen this before. And maybe it's just my understanding of it. And so um, if it is, just leave me with my understanding. Give me the grace to be able to accept that. Amen.
But here's the one thing I suddenly think I realized. And then all of a sudden she goes back and starts saying to everybody, I think I found the one who's the Messiah. I think I found the one who's going to come into this world and make our stories better. I think I found the one who can honestly speak into our stories, our hearts, our lives, our souls, and give us something that we've never had before. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about me. And I think as she said that, she's reflecting back to one thing. He asked me for a drink. He asked me for a drink. And he knew that even touching me would mean every sin that I've ever committed would contaminate him, would bring him down, would would remove from him his own spiritual walk with the Lord. He didn't just even worry about talking to me, which was sinful enough for him. It wasn't even the fact that he worried about touching me. He was willing to drink from something I had. He was willing to take a drink from me. None of you in the community would. None of you would. None of you would ever share that simple thing with me. And he already knew everything about me. And he was saying to me, let me drink from your cup. Let me enter your story. Let me understand and let you understand. I I get your brokenness. I get your brokenness. The author, Ann Voskamp, um, in an interview that I read about her, she talked about, she said, how do you feel about compassion? What is compassion to you? And she said, compassion is this. She said, it is, she said, first of all, she said, this is what passion is. Passion is something, she says, that makes us go to great lengths to want to be able to accomplish something, to be able to get something in our life. Passion is something that drives you. She says, compassion, she says, compassion is recognizing the brokenness of somebody else's story and being willing to enter into it. And being willing to enter into it. She caught the compassion that day. And she saw it. And she realized it. And she experienced it. Because suddenly she realized to herself, you knew everything about me. And you were still willing to drink from my cup. And that's why at the end of John, uh, chapter 4 and verse 42, is a very powerful verse. Can somebody read that one for me? He really is the Savior of the world. To save us from what? To save us from our brokenness. To save us from being captives to shame. To save us from a heart that sometimes just won't let go. Until truth comes in and sets it free. With love, with compassion, with grace, with faithfulness. And that is a powerful story. I'm going to invite the music team to come on back up. The worship team. And I'm just going to close this off in prayer. Father, your spirit is to lead us into all truth. That's his role. That's his job. That's what you've called him to. And that's what he's called to. So, Father, I pray that for each one of us here this morning, myself included, Lord, that you would help us to be able to understand this truth that really sets us free. And that we may not only be set free, O God, but be made powerful. Thank you, Father.
for a love that is willing to drink from our cup. In Jesus' name, amen.